the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God is eternal and abides forever. It gives faith to those who hear it and life to those who receive it in faith. So let us give our undivided attention to the reading of it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because of your faith, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to, as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of power by his work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the reading of our God's word, let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and our hearts, and you know our fears, and you know our doubts. And so we ask that you would flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace, that you would open our minds to your truth, and that you would grant us hope, grant us joy, grant us faith. Increase our understanding and allow us to receive you through your word. Let, our, let your love shine through the pages of your scriptures. May your spirit be with us as we read and hear. May he grant us that we might delight in all we encounter in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think we all understand that we have a tendency to judge our reality and even our relationship with God uh, by our circumstances. We think that when things are going well, that we must be doing okay and that God was, is pleased with us. It's natural to think like this. It, it's human nature. It's how we're wired. It's how we think. But the Bible says to do that is to walk by sight, by what we see. And it's not what it calls us to. 
Because this tendency, what it does is it pulls us away from the wisdom of the gospel and leads us instead to trust our own read of history, our, our reality, our own understanding, our own wisdom. And what it does is it forms within us expectations. We all have expectations. You can't not. All of us do. And, but when our expectations go unmet, more often than not, we, we don't question our expectations. We panic. And when our expectations about God go unmet, we don't question our expectations. We question God's goodness. We question his power. And we question his love. One of the most natural expectations when it comes to God is thinking that, or expecting, that following God will make our lives better. Now, to be sure, it does in many ways. Life with God, let me go on the record, is better than life without God. Forgiveness, peace with God, these, these, these are the greatest gifts that we can receive. But sometimes we think that following God will make our lives easier, more comfortable, and even more fair. That, that following God means that we won't be treated unfairly at work or in society. And when that doesn't happen, we're left with one of three conclusions. We either think that God won't set things right that he must not care about what's fair and just, or we think, we think that he wants to, but is somehow unable to, and he, and he needs us to, that it's up to us to set things right. Or, and I think this is the most scary, we might start thinking that maybe God does help those who belong to him, and since our lives are still hard, maybe that's actually proof that we don't belong to him and that he doesn't love us and he doesn't care about us. That last one is so dangerous because it shows just how much we think that how God treats us is based upon how well we are doing at following him. We think our circumstances are, are a reflection of God's pleasure or displeasure with us. If I'm healthy and successful, I must be doing well. If I'm sick, I get laid off. Then God must be angry at me. After all, if, if God was pleased with me, how would he ever allow me to go, with, go through hard times? And these are the very sorts of questions that the Christians in Thessalonica were wrestling with. And we saw this last summer when we looked at 1 Thessalonians. Uh, the Thessalonians had heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul and Silvanus or, or Silas, as he's sometimes called, and Timothy. The, the Thessalonians, some of them had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But, but being Christians did not make them popular in Thessalonica. In fact, it was just the opposite. And so these Christians are suffering. 
They've been persecuted. They've been ostracized from their families, their communities. Maybe they've lost their jobs. And now they're just exhausted. And Paul's message in his first letter to them was what you need is faith, hope, and love. Faith means not seeing as the world sees, but trusting that belonging to Jesus is worth more than anything, everything that the world could offer. Faith meant trusting God in the midst of affliction and pain and suffering. Hope, Paul says, means believing that there is a day coming when Jesus will return and he will set all things right. And love means using the time while we await that day of our hope, not as a time to moan and groan, but an opportunity to look to the needs of others and to show them love and kindness. And so those were the things that we saw in 1 Thessalonians. By the time 2 Thessalonians is written, about a year has passed, things haven't gotten any better, and they're discouraged again. And Paul's not going to tell them something new and different. Well, what I told you last time didn't work. Uh, let me try something different. He's just going to continue proclaiming the same thing to them with, with the hope of strengthening them. But there is one added complication. As we're going to see next week, Lord willing, someone seems to have come in and told the Thessalonians that the return of Jesus, the very thing that Paul had told them in his first letter to look to for comfort, has already happened. Can you imagine? What must they have been thinking and wondering? Jesus has already come back? Everything we, we were looking for has already happened? Is this as good as it gets? Or, or maybe the reason that things didn't get better for them is because they don't belong to God. And he only made things better for those, whom are, those who are his. They could have been thinking, are we even worthy of the name Christian? Of claiming to belong to Jesus. So Paul's going to deal with these issues one at a time. He's going to answer the claim that Jesus has already returned by showing them that the return of Jesus won't be mistakable. It will be unavoidable. It will be obvious for all. There will be no question. And we're going to look at that next week. He's also going to talk to them about how we are called to live while we await his return. And he says three things that we're going to look at uh, towards the end of the letter. What it means to love God while we are in this world. What it means to love those outside the church while we are in this world. Those who are afflicting them and actually having a heart of love for them. And then also the last thing will be how do we look to each other and care for each other and serve each other and not be a burden to each other uh, unnecessarily while we await the return of Christ. But first, this is what we want to see today, he needs to assure them of God's love and assure them that yes, they are indeed worthy of being called Christians. That's what we're going to look at today. And so what I hope to show you through chapter 1 is that Paul's going to tell them that because justice is reserved for the last day, because that, that is what Jesus will do on the last day, that those who are deemed worthy of heavenly glory are counted worthy in this life 
to suffer with and for Jesus. I hope that will make sense by the time we get uh, to the end of this uh, first chapter. I, I want to start in the middle and work our way out. Uh, verses 6 through 10 right there at the center are about God's justice. But really I think Paul includes these verses because, they are, because there are implications of God's justice that he wants us to understand and see. He's going to rehearse a lot of what he said in, in his first letter because he wants us to think about what it means. God's justice counts it fitting to repay with affliction those who afflict others. You can, you can hear justice in that, can't you? Afflict those who afflict. Uh, what you have done will be done to you. Justice. When his justice comes, he will punish those who have rejected him and who have treated his people poorly. Verses 6, verses 8 and 9, and verse 7, he says, and, and he will grant relief at that time to his people who have endured so much hardship. The million dollar question, of course, is, okay, when? When will he do all these things? This is where we get tripped up, and this is where the, the Thessalonians were, were getting confused. They expected these things to already have happened, and since they haven't, they're trying to figure out what that means. Again, this is expectations. The answer to when is as clear as day in our passage, or at least as clear as the day. It says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This is when he will set all things right. This deliverance for his people and punishment for his enemies will not come until Jesus returns with his angels on the last day. Paul made that point in the first letter. He's simply restating it here. His point isn't so much what will happen and when as much then as its implications. The fact that the last day will be one of repaying those who have uh, mistreated God's people means that the time before that last day will be known for what? The mistreatment of God's people. It means that we shouldn't expect it to change until the last day. Paul is managing expectations. He's not saying that mistreatment won't fluctuate and vary. It, it certainly has. In Paul's day, persecution was intense and getting worse. Within just a few years of writing this, uh, Christians would be thrown to lions in Rome. They would be burned alive. It was intense. It lessened over the following centuries. But then it heightened again. At the time of the Reformation, Christians were being put to death, burned. To a great extent, it's lessened today. But we feel it in our own country getting worse. Just two weeks ago, on Christmas Eve, around 150 Christians in Nigeria were murdered because of their faith in coordinated attacks among Christian communities and villages. For their faith. It goes up, it comes down. But what, 
What, what Paul is saying is, this is what we can expect. Now, he's not saying that there's no pleasure in this world, nothing to enjoy. Our lives are filled with blessings for which we are to be thankful. Having jobs, having homes, having family, having friends, having a church, on and on the list goes. There, there are so many blessings. What he's challenging is the idea that Christians should not face unfair treatment. That if they work hard, they will be promoted and rewarded at work. Or that if we just honor God, our lives will get easier. We won't have to battle things like cancer or loss. He's, he's challenging the idea that life is fair. That's not what Jesus said to expect. Do you remember what he said to his disciples? He said that the world cannot love him. And then a few chapters later in John's gospel, he told his disciples, and if the world hates me, it's going to hate you as well. And so Paul's not saying anything new here. He's, he's simply repeating what, what his Lord had said. He's simply telling them when it will change. And he's challenging their expectations that it will change before then. Because false expectations will not only lead to discouragement, but they will lead God's people to questioning God's goodness and his power and even your own salvation. The biblical expectation is for mistreatment in this world and glory in the next. Could it be any other way? Isn't that the pattern that our Lord suffered? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't receive glory in this world. But for the glory and the joy set before him, he endured all sorts of persecution and hardship and pain and suffering. Isn't this what Romans 8.17 says that marks out the children of God? We know we are children and heirs with Christ so long as provided we suffer with Christ in order that we also might be glorified with him. And that means that suffering is not just limited to overt persecution for your faith. It means all the different hardships that this fallen world has to throw at us because that's what it meant for Jesus. That's what he endured on this earth. And you can hear the variety of hardships that Paul has in mind through the different words he uses in our passage. Persecution, affliction, suffering. All related but each have their own unique stamp. The point, Christian, is this. Your comfort and your glory awaits you in heaven. Expecting it before its time will lead to dis disappointment and discouragement. And it's that discouragement that Paul wants to address. You'll notice the word worthy shows up twice in our passage, in verses 5 and 11. And this is the meat of what Paul wants to focus on, their worthiness. He wants to tell his hearers, you are worthy. He's already dealt with, with their worthiness for heaven in verses 6 through 10. That's, that's what Paul's focus was, was talking about in verse 9 when he talks about God's presence. Literally, it says the wicked will be punished away from the face of the Lord. 
it's not talking about God's presence in absolute terms. As Psalm 139 reminds us, as we heard in our call to worship this morning, there is nowhere we can go to hide from God's presence. But seeing God's face is a blessing that belongs only to those who enter into heaven. Only those God counts worthy of eternal life in heaven. This is what uh, verse 5 calls God's kingdom. God's kingdom in its purest form is something that you can only enter into once you have been made perfect and received a glorified body. And so it's a future reality. That's why verse 5 talks about being found worthy of God's kingdom as a future hope. But there's a present reality as well. If, if you belong to God, uh, if you have obeyed the gospel, as verse 8 puts it, by repenting of your sin and placing your faith completely in Jesus Christ, then you no longer belong to this world. That's why Paul opened his letter saying that the Thessalonian Christians are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in them. They are our context. They define us. We belong to them and to the kingdom of heaven, not to the kingdom of this world. And that's why we suffer. Because we are seen as enemies of this world and its ways. Even though God's kingdom is yet to be fully revealed, we already belong to it. And we already suffer for it, according to verse 5. You are suffering for his kingdom. So the question remains, how can you know if you will be counted worthy to stand with Jesus on the last day and enter into his kingdom? Well, it's not by any worthiness you possess in yourself. Look at verse 11. Worthiness is a gift from Jesus. He makes you worthy. In other words, it's by grace, not works. It's only when you confess that you don't deserve it, when you're not worthy, that God declares you worthy. There's nothing in this passage, not, not one tiny shred that says you're worthy because you're good enough or even partially good enough. What's shocking is that what Paul says... Uh, um, what Paul is saying is that the way you know that you have been counted worthy to enter into glory with Jesus is that you have been counted worthy to suffer with him. This is how you know you are worthy to enter into glory with him is because you've been counted worthy to suffer with him in this world. That's what he's saying in verse 5. He knows that they have been counted worthy of seeing God's face because they are patiently enduring affliction for his sake in this world. And this is something the disciples understood well. Do you remember Acts 5? Uh, the apostles were brought before the, the council and then they were beaten for their faith. They were commanded not to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And then Acts 5.41 tells us this, one of the most confusing verses in all of Scripture. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. 
they saw suffering for Jesus as a privilege. And it brought them joy. Not the suffering itself, but that they were identified with their Lord. Isn't this what Peter told his readers? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Suffering for Jesus tells you that you belong to Jesus. And there's no greater privilege. But here's the thing. Peter and Paul didn't come up with this. They're just repeating what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is Paul saying anything different? Jesus goes on and says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice, be glad. This is evidence that you are mine. His promise to those who endure these things in the Sermon on the Mount was, they will see God's face. The Bible sees patiently enduring hardship for Jesus as a privilege that belongs only to those whom God counts as worthy. Far from proving their unworthiness, the trials that they were enduring, Paul turns it around and says those trials are actually testifying to you that you belong to God and that you are worthy of his name. You are worthy to be called Christians. You are worthy to claim his love. You are worthy to hope that there's a day coming when he will set all things right. Their, their misguided expectations were robbing them of that comfort and that joy. They were looking for something that God had never promised and then shocked and dismayed when it didn't come. False, expectation, false expectations are joy stealers. They are joy stealers. And the solution is not to assume that God can't help or that he won't help or that he needs our help or that hardship is proof that we don't belong to him. The solution is to challenge those expectations with the word of God. The solution is to stop judging our reality and our relationship with God based on our circumstances and to start seeing with the eyes of faith. Now, it's one thing to say all of these things. It's another altogether to live it out. Walking by faith and not by sight is hard. Counting suffering for Jesus as a privilege is hard. 
patiently enduring that suffering while you wait is hard. And we can't do it on our own. And Paul doesn't expect us to. That's why our passage begins and ends with giving glory to God alone. To God alone be the glory. Look at verse 4. We ourselves boast about you for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Uh, Paul looks at their afflictions and how they've endured, not as a reason for discouragement, but as a reason to boast, to brag. In other words, he says, this isn't evidence that you have let God down because if you were doing your job, your lives would be better. It's evidence... Not that they don't belong to him. For Paul, it's proof that they are heirs of heaven. Why? Because the only reason they would suffer as they are, and the only reason they can endure as they do, is if they belong to God and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of them and is empowering them. And Paul says, I look at what you're doing, and I'm filled with joy. And I have to brag about it to other congregations. And so his boasting is not in their strength, but in what God is doing in them. Look at verse 11. God has made them worthy. And so in verse 3, he sees himself as obligated. He's constrained to give thanks to God for all of this because he sees God at work in them. And so through all of this, he sees God's name as being glorified in them and through them, verse 12. And it's all evidence of Jesus' grace in them, again, verse 12. Beloved, we too are awaiting that day when we will see our God's face. Not because we're good enough, not even because we're better than others. Because, but because we have simply obeyed the gospel by repenting and surrendering to Jesus. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. That you cried out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Make me yours. Rescue me. And when you do this, you understand that this world has nothing to offer you. And when you understand that everything is turned upside down, you even start to see it as an honor to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. The temptation to judge your reality and your relationship with God based on your circumstances is an extremely dangerous one. To expect your life to get easier because you follow God. That's an expectation that is guaranteed to give you and leave you disappointment. I'm not saying it's not worth it. Far from it. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love how Jim Elliott said that. Really, he's just paraphrasing what Jesus said. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? What I'm saying is that the Bible is emphatically clear that the day of comfort is reserved for the day that Jesus returns. Wishing that it would come sooner won't make it happen. It will leave you disappointed and discouraged and possibly even despairing. But beloved, you have been counted worthy 
to suffer for Jesus' name because you are children of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.10 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you think that you are suffering because you have let God down, you will inevitably be consumed with guilt and shame. But it's often when you feel the least worthy of Jesus' kingdom that you are most worthy because what you are sharing in is his sufferings so that you might also share in his glory. In other words, what, what Paul is telling us in this opening passage is that we must live and we must pray with the last day in view. And to help us remember this, we have a weekly reminder of how our Lord was treated in this world. In the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, we have reminders, not just that Jesus became man, but that he suffered at the hands of sinful men. And he didn't suffer because he was unworthy, oh, but because he was worthy, so worthy. And so the bread and the wine remind us to whom we belong, that we are children of heaven, united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us that there is no greater honor than this. And so I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac to come forward as we prepare to receive this gift from our God this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, you are worthy. Son, you are worthy. Spirit, you are worthy. We know it. We see it and we feel it. But us... We don't feel worthy of heaven or of being called your children. And we worry that you feel the same. We worry that when Jesus comes, he won't recognize us as his own and confess. We confess that we easily confuse how comfortable our lives are with how pleased you are with us. And so we thank you. We thank you for your word, your reminder, your assurance that you count us worthy of heaven and you have counted us worthy to suffer for Jesus. So teach us to count this a privilege. Teach us to rejoice, not in the pain, but in being identified with our blessed Savior who loves us and laid down his life for us. May we count knowing him as more precious than life itself. May he be glorified in us and we in him, according to his grace. Amen.